Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Uh, We will be in verses 27 through the end of the chapter into Mark chapter 12, and we'll finish in Mark chapter 12, verse 12. And my prayer this morning for us as I came into the building was, Lord, would you just give us a joy in our worship? Would you just give us a joy in the hallways of this church, just a joy to be in the house of the Lord? Just a joy to be around other believers, a joy to sing, a joy to listen to your word, a joy just to to be around other believers. So I pray as we leave this morning that the Lord continues to fill our hearts with joy and being together and being the body of Christ. So Mark chapter 11, uh, let's start in verse 27. You'll recall uh, that last week we looked at Jesus cleansing the temple and the past two weeks have kind of been a little bit of a a, a sandwich, a Markian sandwich as they say, where we looked at the fig tree and its cursing and the temple and its cleansing and here we have the authority of Jesus being challenged in verse 27 through the parable of the tenants which is essentially right on par with what Jesus is getting to these uh, scribes and chief priests and those who are seeking to disrupt the authority of Jesus. So let's start in verse 27 of Mark chapter 11. If you have your half sheet, you can follow along. There's some scripture to be helpful and some fill in the blanks. And again, they came to Jerusalem. And as he was walking around in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or was it from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, uh, he will say, why then did we not believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Chapter 12, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased it to his tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And yet they sent another and, and he killed and they killed him as well. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will surely respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner then do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the others. Have you not read the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. They were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So he left, and they went away. Let's pray together. Lord, would you teach us, uh, mold us, teach us, transform us more and more every day into your image. We recognize that we need you, and we rely on you to be the authority for our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And where we left, last left off Jesus, he has cursed a fig tree and he has cleansed a temple, right? So Jesus has done two pretty miraculous things or two really big things right back to back. And it's with this that it says in the scripture, Mark chapter 11, verse 27, that again, Jesus came to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple. 
Now, remember that just a few days before, Jesus had gone in and totally disrupted the sacrificial system in the temple. He's walked in, he's cleared the temple of the money changers, he's stopped and halted all the um, uh, sacrifices. He's ruffled a few feathers, to say the least, right? And so once again, Jesus is going to just walk right back into the temple. Can you imagine the chief priests and the scribes are thinking, what is this guy doing? Like he's already come in here once and messed things up. Like what is this guy doing? Who, who does he think he is? I mean, you can almost feel it in their questioning, right? Who does this guy think he is? Once would be enough coming in messing things up, but we're not having this again. And so they almost like serve like bouncers coming to him before he really gets into the temple and said, hold on just a second. Sir, we have some questions for you. You're not getting in here doing this, this thing that you did last time. This ain't happening. We're not having the driving out. We're not having the oxen leaving. We're not having you disrupting our temple sacrifices, right? Probably sounding very high and pious, right? Hey, don't you be coming in here disrupting our sacrificing. We're trying to do the Lord's work in here. Don't you be messing that up, Jesus. Right? And you recall Jesus' anger and frustration with him. Right? So here they are talking about Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? If you look in your scripture, you see in the first four or five verses, the word authority comes up on a multitude of occasions. Four or five times you see Jesus say, and they say, by what authority do you do these things? It's like you walking into the IRS today and saying, hey, I just wanna let you know, I'm not paying my taxes. Right, one of the questions they would ask, uh, no, on what authority are you coming in here saying that, right? You got no chance, right? And so in the same way, they're coming in asking, on what authority are you coming in our temple and you telling us that these money changers and the pigeons and the temple worship and all this stuff is not, not how it's supposed to be? On what authority are you doing these things? Now, peeling back here, we're 11 chapters in, and if I were to put, say, one word to be a, a, an adjective for all that we've seen in the book of Mark, it would be authority. Right. Have you seen it over and over again from Mark chapter one? You remember that the Bible talked about, hey, this guy speaks with such authority, right? Who is this that has the authority to, to stop the wind and the seas from their howling? Who is it that has the authority to cleanse the leper? I mean, we felt this for 11 chapters now, this word authority come clear into focus. And if you haven't had a moment to examine your heart to say, Lord, is your word the chief authority of my life? I would give you that we're 11 chapters in. It's time to make that opportunity. I heard a story in preparation this week that kind of helps drive this home. There was one night that a Navy captain was sailing home and this Navy captain uh, in the distance saw a ship coming at him. He saw the bright lights on this dark night of what he believed was a ship quickly approaching his position. So as any good Navy captain did, he, he got on the, the horn and he said, move 10 degrees south or we're going to crash on authority of the U.S. captain of this Navy ship. Well, right back on the other end, this intercom voice came back and said, I will not move. You need to move 10 degrees north so that you do not crash. Well, this Navy captain got back on the horn and he was greatly upset and he said, did you not hear me? You move 10 degrees south so that you do not crash. I am a captain in the U.S. Navy. Once again, this voice came back and said, sir, you move 10 degrees south. I'm not moving. Once again, this Navy captain came back and said, sir, I am the highest rank of the U.S. Navy. My ship is not moving. You move 10 degrees north or you will crash. On the other end of the line, the voice came back and said, sir, we're a lighthouse. We're not moving. So either you move 10 degrees south or you will crash. So often we approach God's word in a similar fashion. 
we look at it and say, Lord, you better move because I'm not moving. You better adjust, Lord, because I'm not quaking. I'm not moving. It's my way or the highway, Lord. This is, this is I'm doing what I want to do and I better find somewhere in here that would justify or back up what I want to do. Ultimately, we come with full submission to the word of God and say, Lord, I recognize that I may not be the captain in the U.S. Navy. I may just be a, a lowly person, but I submit to your authority for my life. I submit to your word and your leadership for my life. Friends, we can get on the horn and we can cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, you better move or you better allow me to do the things that I want to do. And that you know where that leads. It leads to a shipwreck of epic proportions. Until this morning, let's look afresh and anew as we look at the scriptures and a reminder of what Jesus has called us to, to allow him to be the chief authority of our lives every day and in every way. But let's dive into these three main questions that we want to ask this morning. First, Jesus responds back to that pointed question of on what authority do you do these things with the question back to them saying, was John's baptism from heaven or was it from man? This is going to be a very important question and one that Jesus often got with the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes. Jesus wouldn't often just tell them precisely what they wanted to hear. He would often point a question to them, a question for their ponderance. And he asked them, is John's baptism, was it from God or was it from man? And the answer to this question would be incredibly important for them and for everybody in attendance. Let's take a a moment and look back in Matthew chapter three on your outline. You see what John's baptism of Jesus was all about. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Reminded that in that moment, heavens opened up and this spirit descended on him like a dove and this voice from heaven cried out, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. So for this question to hit the ears of the chief priests and the scribes was very telling. Either the scribes and the chief priests could come together and say, well, if it's from heaven, if this is truly a baptism from heaven, why are we not worshiping? Why are we not obeying? If this is really a baptism from heaven, why are we not obeying? And if it's for man, of what consequence is it? Why does it even matter? And can't you see them? It says in the text that they, they, they went over and they talked about it. So can't you see Jesus pose this question and off to the side, the Pharisees are like, all right, group huddle guys, group, hey, we need to, everybody come on in. All right, if we say that it's from heaven, now, hey, we can't do that because, oh man, all right, what can we do? What are we, what are we gonna do here? Everybody's watching. And so they come up with a fantastic solution, right? What do they say? We don't know. No idea. We have no idea. We recognize that if we say it's from heaven, we understand what that means. And if we recognize from God, these people understand what it means too. And so we're in some hot water. And so Jesus underhandedly recognizes that they have no authority to understand these things. I mean, in this moment, Jesus does a a masterful job because at the end of the day, even if Jesus says, it is by my father's authority that I do all these things, do you think the Pharisees really would have changed? Do you really think their hardness of heart would have melted away in that moment? I mean, think about all the things that they've seen and witnessed to this point. If Jesus would have said, hey, I am who I say I am. I I am the son of God and I've come here to save you of your sins. Do you think at that moment, the Pharisees would have dropped down and worshiped? I don't think so. Jesus said, neither by 
neither will I tell you by whose authority I do these things, if it wouldn't be enough for all that they have seen, for them not to bow down and worship, what would have been enough? Now, I have served as a youth intern here over many years ago, and one of the things that we did every summer is we went to Six Flags to do roller coasters and hang out and choir tours and all that, and there is one thing in this world that I will never do, and that's get on a roller coaster. Not happening. Will not do it. I have seen countless people come off a roller coaster and survive, but I recognize that I would be the one who would die on a roller coaster, so I'm not going to do it. I have stood in line with my fiance or my, uh, my wife who was then we were dating. I've stood in line for two hours at the Batman ride at Six Flags only to just walk right over the ride and get off in line and just walk right out. Not doing it. No matter of convincing that you will ever do, no matter uh, how many times I have seen every person walk off a ride successfully, I will not get on one. And I know your your, uh, proclivity will be to use your prayer card this morning to write me notes of encouragement to get on a roller coaster, but I'm not going to do it. I'm telling you, I'm not going to do it. It's irrational. I've seen countless people get off okay. I know that they'd have strict safety precautions to allow you to get off those roller coasters okay, but I'm not going to do it. I'm scared. It's the blunt level. I'm scared. Not going to do it. No level of rationalization, no level of reason will ever get me on a roller coaster. I'm 35. I'm not going to change. It's what happens when you get old, right? You get stubborn. (laughs) Not changing. And in the same way, you feel the Pharisees simply say, hey, I, I don't care what rationalizations you have. I don't care what I've seen. I don't care what I've witnessed. I don't care what people tell me. I don't care the miracles that I've seen. I don't care how many changed lives I'm going to witness. I'm not getting on that ride. I'm not following this Jesus. I may tiptoe in a little bit. I may look around. I may get in line. I may watch. I may come to church. I may see all the spectacles. I may see a thousand changed lives, but I'm not getting on that ride. Friends, the Pharisees' hardness of heart kept them from recognizing the Messiah that was standing right in front of them. Their hardness of heart. And I believe that we may have some in this room this morning that your heart, your heart is so hardened over life's difficulties, life's circumstances, or maybe just bad experiences that change lives that are in front of you people telling you, you have this hardness of heart that would say, I'm not following this Jesus. That's why David prayed, Lord, would you create in me a clean heart, O Lord, restore a right spirit within me. Maybe there's somebody that you're praying for over years and years and years that has that same attitude, I will not get on that ride. Can I tell you a little story? This summer at the Southern Baptist Convention, it was in Anaheim. And for the first time, my wife got me on a very small roller coaster. It was very small. I think it was the kid's roller coaster. (laughs) But can I tell you, it opened my heart to something. It was a little kiddie roller coaster, but you know what? It opened my heart to a little something. That maybe when we go back to Disney, maybe I'll get on a bigger roller coaster. Who knows? Pray for me. I tell you that to remind you that maybe... Maybe at times the Lord just needs to work in your your heart or somebody around you that you're praying for. Lord, would you just open their heart just a little bit? 
Lord, open their heart to receive the possibility that John's baptism was from heaven. Open their heart just a sliver to see that this God is real. Open their heart just a tiny little bit to see the goodness of the Lord in their life. This key question from the Pharisees, was John's baptism from heaven or was it from man? Was it of no consequence or was it everything? That's why we pray, Lord, would you create in me a clean heart? Would you recognize in me a soft and malleable heart to recognize your goodness, your fullness in the world around me? It's a question that we all need to ask. Lord, is this real? Is this true? Is this right? And if it is, Lord, then that would mean we give ourselves fully to it. As we come to the end of chapter 12, uh, chapter 11, you see Jesus say, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things because they have so often seen it and experienced it, yet their heart, their heart is hardened to it. So as we move to chapter 12, you see that Jesus continues speaking a parable to those who would seek to destroy him. It's the parable of the tenants, such an interesting parable. Very commonplace that a, a man, a, a rich person would come and buy a tract of land and they would put some sort of wine press on it to create uh, money and resources over time and they would lease it to different people to come and work. And after an extended time, they would come and send a servant to collect their, uh, their resources, fruit or whatever it may be from the wine press. And here in this interesting parable, you see that this, this owner sent several servants to come and collect what was due to the owner. But everyone that came was beaten by the tenants and killed. For a moment, let's look in precisely what this looks like, that the tenants are the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, those who would seek to destroy him. The servants are those prophets who have spoken and testified to the goodness of the Lord. And then this much beloved son that the fathers are the uh, father sins is Jesus. It's obvious in our eyes, but you see in Hebrews chapter one, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. See, where does God's patience lead us? Number two, where does God's patience lead us? At first glance, as I read this parable, I think, how could the owner continue to send these servants and servants and servants, right? He's killing the servants. The tenants are killing the servants. How could this owner not just say, well, forget these people. I'm sending in the Calvary to destroy these people who have treated us so terribly. Over and over again, this owner sends servant after servant after servant to testify to them. Essentially, this is what the prophets have done. Israel, repent of your sins. Israel, turn and become right. Israel, repent, repent, repent. John the Baptist, repent and come to faith. And after they killed every one of them, when God easily could have said, hey, these people are terrible. They have killed they have turned their backs on me. They don't deserve my, my grace. They deserve my wrath. The owner sends his beloved son, who ultimately they would kill and throw out of the vineyard, who ultimately the chief priests and the scribes would kill. But look at the bottom of your outline, number, or uh, the bottom of your text in verse 10 of chapter 12. When Jesus says, have you not read this scripture that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And even better in verse 11, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Isn't it marvelous? 
that this was God's plan all along, that he would send his son to this earth, live a sinless and perfect life, and he would die on the cross, that the building, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So number three, what is the cornerstone? What is this cornerstone? We've sung about it, Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong. What is this cornerstone? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's become the central piece in our faith. Jesus. Without Jesus, everything falls apart. Without Jesus, there is nothing. There's nothing to sing about. There's nothing to celebrate. Acts chapter four on your outline says that Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and that there is salvation in no one else. You may recall Acts chapter four, verse 12 was our scripture memory, many months ago, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is that cornerstone. Without Jesus living and dying on the cross, we have nothing together in this sanctuary about. Jesus is the very cornerstone piece. Let me ask you, is Jesus the the cornerstone piece of your life? As temples of the Holy Spirit, as Brad read earlier, as we are temples, is Jesus your cornerstone. In fifth grade, I recall going to the McWayne Center on a school field trip, and I was particularly taken by a particular area of the McWayne Center. If you've been there before, you know they have these different stations that you can play and build and do different things with, but I was particularly taken by a section of the McWayne Center that this girl that I had a crush on in fifth grade with these crazy bangs named Brittany Tucker was over there building archways. Uh, And with her friend, she was building these giant arches, and it was teaching about the cornerstone. And a bunch of her friends were building these tall, giant arches, and on one side, you had about three people trying to stack the arches together. On the other side, you had about three friends trying to stack these arches together, and you had that one person with that yellow block. It was a different shaped block, but it was the cornerstone block right? You remember if you've been there before. And so they stack up these blocks and there's that moment where everything is coming together, right? People are holding it. They're using a leg to hold this thing up and the other side's holding things, just trying to keep this structure together. And there's that moment that comes when the person holding that yellow block says, it's time, we're ready for it, right? And so they run up and they put that center cornerstone block in that archway and then everybody backs away, just making sure it's going to stand, right? And what does it do? It stands up beautifully and perfectly. And then there's that moment where that kid, that rambunctious little boy comes and takes that cornerstone piece out and what happens? It all goes crumbling down. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe, maybe on that little analogy here, maybe you feel different parts of it. Maybe you feel like your life is just a mess and you're trying to hold up that, that archway the best you can. You're holding it up with everything you've got and it's just not working out. You're exhausted, holding up all the pieces of your little archway, trying to figure out how you can get all the pieces together and hold it up and you're exhausted, holding all these little pieces together, holding up your family, holding up your involvement, holding up your school, holding up all these different plates. You're just, you're struggling holding it all together because you were never meant to hold it all together. And friends, for some of you, you need to, to hold that cornerstone piece and slot it right into your life. Jesus holds all things together, friends. He is the cornerstone, but is he the cornerstone? Is he the authority of your life? 
I wish I could answer it for you, but it's a question only you can ask. Is Jesus the cornerstone piece of your life? Did he die on the cross to save you of all of your sins? Have you given yourself fully to him? In the same way we watched these four be baptized earlier, plunge beneath the waters and raised to walk in newness of life. Are you walking as Jesus, the chief cornerstone of your life as he is this church? We can try to hold it all together. In the same way we've looked at the, the fig tree with a bunch of leaves but no fruit. As we looked at the temple with a lot of bustling activity but no worship. We can have a lot of disjointed pieces with no cornerstone. So friends, the question would be, have you given your life to Jesus? Is he the cornerstone piece of your life? Do that by, at the bottom of your outline, doing this very simple thing. We always keep the main thing the main thing. In your life, we keep the main thing the main thing. In your family, you keep the main thing the main thing. What is that main thing for you? In your heart of hearts, maybe you use the bottom of that line to simply write out what is the main thing. In your family, what, what is the main thing for you? Is it to accumulate? Is it to be happy? Is it to find joy? Is it to find peace? Or is it to know Jesus and to make him known? What is your main thing this morning? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. Oh, we thank you for the joy that it is to worship. As we come to this time of invitation, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive and to respond. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.